0: We already read what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 19. And so after the sermon, we will sing together from Hymn 31, the Stances 4 and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, including you, boys and girls, young people, Revelation 20 deals with the thousand-year reign. It is that thousand-year reign that will also have our attention this afternoon. That may surprise you, for you may wonder what a thousand-year reign has to do with this Lord's Day. Well, if you study both the scripture passage and the Lord's Day carefully, then you will note that these two are indeed closely related. For as we will see, although the rain itself is not mentioned in Lord's Day 19, the matter certainly is. And so let us listen to God's word as we confess it in Lord's Day 19. I will preach to you about the thousand-year reign of Christ. We will see three things. First of all, the significance of this thousand-year reign. Secondly, the blessings of this thousand year reign, and then finally, the fulfillment of this thousand year reign. As I said, the matter of the thousand year is mentioned both in Lord's Day 19 and Revelation 20. For both deal with the rule of Christ at the right hand of God the Father, and both deal with the benefits of Christ's rule for the believer. Both also deal with his return and his judgment of the nations. As you know, the Heidelberg Catechism is following here the order of the Apostles' Creed. And we now have come to the statement, He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Note that the present tense is used. Christ sits at the right hand of of God the Father Almighty. That's what he is doing today. For we are living in what the Bible says in the latter days. Those latter days are now. It is the time between Christ's ascension to heaven and his return on the last day. The reign of Christ as the incarnate Son of God Began when he ascended. That reign began at the time of his ascension. At that time, he went into heaven in the flesh and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. That's also when the thousand year reign began. That thousand year reign is a very definite time period with a beginning. And with an end. When that thousand year reign is over, then Christ will hand back that kingdom and hand it over to the Father again. That is what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, where Paul writes, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And so we can say that as soon as Christ ascended into heaven, the first day of that thousand-year reign began. And the last day is the year 1000 when he returns on the clouds. At that time Christ will have finished his task and heaven will come down to earth. Then there is no longer any place for Satan and his hosts. He will have been completely destroyed and banished and his dominion will be no more you are probably aware that not everyone agrees with this interpretation. There are many Christians, even in Reformed and Presbyterian circles, who have a different view of the thousand-year reign of Christ, especially evangelicals do. And such people are known as millennialists. The word for millennialism comes from two Latin words, mille, a thousand and anus, year. Most pre-millennialists teach a literal thousand year reign of Christ, although not all do. They do not believe, as we do, that this thousand year reign has already begun, whether or not they see that thousand years literally or not. But they say that that thousand year reign, that that still lies in the future. They say that history is moving in the direction of the great, of the grand climax of the return of Christ. And at that time, the first resurrection will occur. At that time, Christ will reign for a thousand years on earth. And they say that time will be a time of bliss and of peace and of righteousness. At the end of that thousand year reign, Satan will be loosed once more. A great battle will ensue, which Christ and his church will win. Then the final judgment and the second resurrection will occur. And so, these people, these premillennialists, are waiting for that thousand-year reign still to be inaugurated. But is that true? It's not my intention to refute every aspect of this teaching. For this afternoon, we are not listening to a catechism lesson, but we are listening to the living preaching of God's Word. Therefore, only a few words of refutation will suffice. In the first place, we must remember that the book of Revelation uses symbolic language. It does that throughout the whole book. Numbers have a symbolic meaning. That is clear, for example, when there is spoken of the 24 elders before the throne. The 24 elders refer to the completeness of the Church of Christ. To the twelve tribes of the Old Testament and the twelve apostles of the New Testament on whom the church was founded. And Revelation also speaks about the seven spirits which are before God's throne. You heard that salutation just a moment ago already as we do every afternoon worship service. These seven spirits refer to the Holy Spirit. They do not refer to seven separate spirits. For the number seven refers to the fullness of God. Here in Revelation 20, there is no reason to believe that in this case, we are to take that number, that number thousand, literally. For the number ten refers to the number of completeness as does that number, for example, in Revelation 2, verse 20, where we read that there will be ten days of tribulation. The thousand years, ten times ten times ten, is not a number to be taken, literally, therefore, but figuratively. But what about the fact, then, that Satan will be bound for a thousand years? For the premillennialists believe that this binding of Satan also still lies in the future. He will be bound only during that thousand-year reign. For, so they say, look around you. Does it look like Satan is bound right now? Look at all the power that he has. And look at all the misery and pain around you. That's all the work of Satan. Indeed, it is true that Satan is a very powerful foe. His presence is felt all around us. He is felt also in our hearts. It is a constant struggle to keep the evil one at bay. But there is no doubt that also today Satan is on a chain. A very long one, mind you. But the fullness of his power is still not felt today. For what is the goal of his binding? Verse 3 tells us that Satan was bound so that he could no longer deceive the nations. For when Christ ascended into heaven we know that Satan was thrown out of heaven. He no longer had access to the throne of God in the way that he had before. And Christ predicted that he went to the 70 who returned with joy after their mission. He said to them, as we know from Luke 10 verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When Christ came in victory, Satan was thrown out. From then on in, his power was diminished. Christ, now seated at the right hand of God the Father, means that Satan's power has been limited. Satan's power is not felt as much as it was during the Old Testament times. For now, indeed, we live in the latter days. At a time when the whole world has to be evangelized so that in the end Christ may be all in all and the number of his elect be full. We now live in the age of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And so in spite of the power of Satan, today it is possible that Christ's church here on earth can flourish. God preserves his church here on this earth. We are able to worship every first day of the week. Satan right now is not able to prevent us from doing so. And we are also able to engage in the work of mission here in Canada, in Prince George, in the Fraser Valley, in Hamilton, and also, in broad, also abroad in Brazil, and Indonesia, in China, and elsewhere. Sure, there are many hindrances and obstacles. And yet, we as Christians are still able to have a lot of freedom. Satan is not able to destroy the church. Instead of in trampling God's elect underfoot... Instead of keeping the church of Jesus Christ from raiding her banner all over the world, on every continent and every country of the world, the name of Christ as King has been and is being proclaimed today. And do you know how that is possible, brothers and sisters, boys and girls? And this is possible because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. As the Catechism says, Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of the church through whom the Father governs all things. You realize, of course, that the expression seated at the right hand of God is symbolic. For in the scriptures the right hand is always symbolic of power, and to sit at the right hand is a place of honor. Christ has received the glory and the honor and the power. Power to do what? Well, he has the power to prepare his bride for the last day, for the marriage feast of the bride with the groom. That's what he is doing right now at this very moment. He pleads our cause, your cause, my cause before the Father. He sends out his Holy Spirit. So that the church can withstand the attacks of the evil one. For to him has been given all the power in heaven and on earth. He has placed everything under his feet. And that includes all angels and evil spirits, nations and continents. Nothing escapes his attention. And there is nothing that happens here on this earth outside of his will. Well, that is how powerful our Savior is. Everything is subject to him. It may not seem to us that way. It may not seem that he is in control. For look at, the, look at the kind of things that happen here on this earth. There is so much evil. There is so much misery. And yet Christ uses all the evil which man brings upon himself. He uses that for his own purposes. He uses the wars and the famines and the injustice and the disobedience and all the other evil things to bring this present age to its close. For there will be an end to his thousand-year reign. There will come a time when he will hand it all over to the Father, as the Lord Jesus also says in his high priestly prayer in John 17. And he will say, Here, Father, it is all over. Satan has been bound forever. And now, here are your and my sheep. They have safely come home. Here they are around your throne. Heaven and earth have been united. But until that final day of judgment, Christ will always remain in control. Believe that, brothers and sisters. Believe that he will never abandon you, no matter how rough the going gets. For remember, Christ is in heaven as head of the church, as the catechism says. Do you know the order of the catechism? First is spoken of Christ as head of his church. But then question and answer 52, speak about his headship and kingship over the whole world. For you see, this whole world is now already subject to the church. If it were not for the church here on this earth, this world would cease to exist. For the world around us, and that includes all the mighty nations and kings and powers that be, they are subject even to the church, which is the bride of Christ, even though those institutions will not acknowledge it. That does not mean that Satan is not out to destroy the church. And therefore, beloved, we still have quite a battle to wage during this thousand-year reign. It is not yet a time of peace. The battle rages. But in the meantime, there are also so many blessings that God bestows upon his church. We come to the second point. That is clear from the second question and answer of this Lord's Day, where it is asked... How does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? The first benefit given is that by his Holy Spirit he pours out his heavenly gifts upon us, his members. It doesn't say exactly what those blessings for the church are. The catechism doesn't spell them out. One of the great blessings, of course, is the Holy Spirit that we will deal with the next time in the next Lord's Day. But If we look at Revelation twenty, then we can see the other blessings for the church. It says in verse six, Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. Speaks there about the first resurrection. What is that all about? The premillennialists say that this refers to those who are raised from the dead when Christ comes to earth to usher in his thousand year reign. It refers to those who have already died, who died in the Lord, who have been buried, and who are now made alive in order to reign with Christ until the final day. The unbelievers, they remain in the grave. But the believers will be reunited with their bodies. That's the first resurrection. But is that really true? For does it not also say in verse 4 that the apostle John says that I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The souls of those who were beheaded for the sake of the gospel remained alive in heaven. And there they remained, waiting for the final day. Waiting for the day that they would be reunited with their bodies. What then does the first resurrection refer to? Well, brothers and sisters, it refers to nothing else than the fact that we have all been made alive in Christ. Those who are without Christ are dead already. But that does not refer to the believer. You and I, we have already experienced the first resurrection, if you believe. For eternal life has begun now already. as As John also says in chapter 3 verse 36. It has begun now already in this earthly life. When you believe you have eternal life. And Christ has given us his life-giving spirit. We are part of the vine that is Christ. We receive the life-giving juices of the vine every day of our lives. And those juices, they have been poured out upon us, as the Catechism so aptly puts it. And what else? Well, look at the scripture reference at the bottom of the Catechism. One of the references is Ephesians 4. In verse 7 it says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And then in verse 11 continues, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Those are more gifts to the church they precious gifts. They refer to the office bearers of the church. Do you give thanks for them, brothers and sisters? For do you know what the office bearers do? They guide you in the truth. So that you remain in the truth. So that you can be part of God's people. So that you can also experience the first resurrection time and again. That they are God's gift to you. It is through are mere men. But whom do they represent? The office bearers, they represent Christ in the preaching of the gospel. And they represent the instrument through whom it pleases the Lord God to hand out all those wonderful gifts that he gives to his church. He uses those office bearers to equip you, to equip you for service in his kingdom, as we heard also this morning. For the office bearers, in spite of their shortcomings, have been chosen by God to proclaim the fullness of God's promises. They are there to keep you safe. And that's why the Lord God has also given them the keys of his kingdom, which they have to exercise in accordance with God's word. And they are to use discipline so that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will not fall asleep. And so do not despise these office bearers, brothers and sisters. Do not despise them as they come into your homes, as they will do in this coming season to make their visit. They are not mere men. They come there as ambassadors of God. They are God's gift to you. For together we are looking forward to the final day when Christ will be all in all and when all imperfections will be removed forever. And there's still another gift that he gives us. It's that he gives us. It says in, catechism, in the catechism that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the enemy is still around. Satan. And he is walking around like a roaring lion. But now the Lord Does give us his wonderful gifts to fend him off. Note well that the Catechism uses military language, and that's also what the scriptures do to defend and preserve against all enemies. What is that defense? Well, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 6. He writes there about the whole armor of God. He tells us that we must have the truth buckled around our waist and that we must put on the breastplate of righteousness and that we must have our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace and that we have to take up the shield of faith those are God's gifts to us to you to me and they are there for you for the grabbing All you have to do is put them on. Put on your breastplate of righteousness. That means that you are justified through the blood of Christ. Put on the truth. That means listen to God's word. Apply it. And when you do that. That will be enough to ward off the evil one. Satan will never be able to defeat you. And in this way beloved. You do not have to be afraid of what the future holds either. For Our battle will not last forever. The thousand year will come to an end. Christ is going to come back on the clouds. And that brings us to our third and final point. That's also what question and answer 52 speak about when the question is asked, What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? When is that final judgment coming, you might ask? Well, brothers and sisters, we don't know for sure. The scriptures tell us that he will come like a thief in the night. And yet, for the believers, there will be signs, like birth pangs, as Paul says to the Thessalonians. He says further in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brethren, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Why won't you be surprised? Well, Because at the end of the thousand years Satan will be let loose for a little while. The chain which he currently is on will receive a lot more slack than he has now already. And at that time the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will be persecuted. And so we will know the signs. We would rather not think about these things. It's frightening for us. But don't be afraid. It will only be for a short while. In the meantime he will never be able to claim you for Christ rules. And he has given us his equipment. And his equipment will never fail. And also remember as it says in Matthew 10 verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Satan cannot claim you. Do not fear him. But instead fear God. What does that mean? Does that mean that you have to be afraid of God? That you have to shudder before him? That you have to be shaking in your boots? Well, in a certain sense it does. It's true. Be afraid of him knowing what he can do if you do not take his gifts seriously. If you despise his gifts for his gifts are not to be trifled with. Know that he can indeed throw you into eternal damnation and throw you into the lake of fire along with the evil one. But at the same time, remember that those who belong to him who believe that their sins are forgiven and who are truly sorry for all their sins and shortcomings, that they do not have to be afraid. Not in the least. The Lord is gracious. The Lord forgives you. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what kind of sin and how many sins you have committed. As long as you repent. His grace is sufficient for you and for me. But what about the fact then you may ask that it says in Revelation 20 verse 13. That each person will be judged according to what he has done. It also says that in Matthew 12 verse 36 and in article 37 of the Belgian Confession that on the day of judgment all people will render account for every careless word they utter. Does that include us? And if it does, is that not something to be afraid of? And the answer, no brothers and sisters. You do not have to fear that. There is nothing to fear. For look at the context in which this will be done. This is not a negative thing. This will actually be a wonderful occurrence. For then we will fully realize how great our deliverance is. And then we will fully realize the great price that Christ has paid for our sins and how greatly he has loved us. For look at what the Catechism says. The very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake. Has removed all the curse for me. Present tense. We know that we have the forgiveness of sins. We know that now already. And do not forget either that at the time of the judgment two books will be opened. The book of life. As it says in verse 12 of Revelation 20, the book of life will already be open at that time of judgment. And so there is nothing to fear. Our names are written in that book. And so, brothers and sisters, let us look forward to the second coming of Christ. His thousand years will come to an end, there is no doubt. Satan and his army is already defeated. And that defeat will be complete on the last day. Isn't it wonderful to know that? Isn't it wonderful to know what kind of father in heaven we have? The battle will rage here on earth. It will be a fierce battle. But the victory is already assured through Jesus Christ. Who sits at the father's right hand. And we too will be ready and victorious with him. Amen.